But over the course of an average decade, more than half of all companies go backwards, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Business Owners Radio, where established business owners get the latest insights, strategies, and practices to grow a sustainably profitable business. And now, taking care of business, your hosts, Craig Moen and Shai Gilad. Welcome to Business Owners Radio, Episode 98. Our guest today is Steve McKee, founder and president of McKee Wallwork & Company an award-winning integrated marketing firm founded in 1997 and alumni of Inc. Magazine's fastest-growing companies in America. Steve is also the author of two award-winning books, the first being When Growth Stalls, How It Happens, Why You're Stuck, and What to Do About It, and the second, Power Branding, Leveraging the Success of the World's Best Brands. As a business and branding strategist for nearly 30 years, Steve is a columnist for BusinessWeek.com, as well as appearing regularly on the major business TV broadcast and speaking at corporate events. Good morning, Steve. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Good morning. Great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you with us today and looking forward to this. And Steve, before we dive into today's topic, let's talk a little bit about the path of your career and what inspired you to write two award-winning books. Uh, the path of my career. You know, when I was young, I always wanted to be a writer. And in my early 20s, I started several books. And then I came across some great advice that was uh, write what you know. And I realized I didn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I set them aside for 20 years and went about getting into the advertising business and made my way through it. And then in my 40s, actually, I realized that maybe I did have something to say, especially with When Growth Stalls, my first book, because it was so personal. So I sat down and uh, banged it out. It's amazing. Process involved. I know it takes forever. <laughs> well, you know, people ask me that. I, I wrote the book in 90 days. Um, oh, man. Marathon. I, that was sort of literally the writing of the book. But I lived the book for four or five years. And so it was in me, you know, and even the outline was in me because I'd been speaking and so forth. And so when I got publisher, they gave me a real short deadline because that was during the recession and they wanted to get the book out quickly. And so I sat down and did it. In the work you're doing today with your company, what types of focus areas do you have? What are the big strengths these days that your focus is on? Pretty commonly, we get asked what we specialize in, and the standard refrain is, it's not what, it's when. And we work with what we've come to call stalled, stuck, and stale companies. And the idea is, and this goes back to our research, which I write about, over the course of an average year, about 14% of all companies stall. We define that as just flat or negative revenue growth. But over the course of an average decade, more than half of all companies go backwards, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. We step in when things are going badly because there are some really unique dynamics going on when companies struggle. Yeah, there's a lot of volume of clients that we work with and business owners in general. There's a cycle to the business. Things are going well and then something moves, something shifted. The customers yes. are different, their, their alignments are different, and 
they spend a lot of time and volume of resources trying to understand their targeted customers. And they think they get it right because they determine that they are very logical and uh, straightforward. And we just match our reasons why to buy our product or service and everything's good, right? Yeah, we we call that the fallacy of rationality. (laughs) Uh, Tell me more. Well, I mean, we all think we're rational. Uh, there isn't a single purchase decision we make, my contention, that is purely rational. That doesn't mean that it's irrational. It means there's a whole host of non-rational things going on from emotions to what we sense in our gut from our past experience to our subconscious and what have you. But with business owners in particular, what we find is that we are all, and this was us as well prior to doing our research, which really opened our eyes, we're all focused on the externalities. We're focused on the marketplace, focused on competition, we're focused on new technology, focused on the recession. All those things are relevant, but they're not the whole story. And what we found is that it's the internal dynamics, four of them in particular, that tend to derail companies, particularly when things from the outside go awry. I love the way that this parallels humanity in terms of leadership, right? Like, it's, it's, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, we always say that the business is a reflection of the owner. And all of our internal struggles with leadership usually caused by this focus on everything else that the externalities, like you say, that are happening around us. And the only way to really break from that sort of victim mentality is to look inside and say, you know, what am I doing? How am I affecting this? And what could I do differently? And it sounds like you're challenging business owners to do that with their business? No question. This all came about because we had grown really fast as a young company. We made the Inc. 500 list, fastest growing private companies in America. We thought we were pretty hot stuff. And then we suddenly and inexplicably stalled. And we went through almost two years of flat growth is the only way I know how to put it. And it was inexplicable. We didn't have a new competitor. The economy was doing okay at the time. And the pat on the back that I probably gave myself for our growth which was somewhat undeserved, was now reversed. I really, really blamed myself for our struggles to a fault. And one of the things that I learned during that period is it's very difficult to be creative when you're discouraged. And that's a telling moment. When you're looking in the mirror every morning as a business owner at your bleary eyes and wondering what you're going to do and how you're going to meet payroll and whether or not you're just a fool and you're being exposed right now, it's very difficult to think about creative solutions. And that's why when we did our first wave of research and we found out that this was among Inc. 500 companies, almost 20% of them stall after they make the list. That fact alone was so freeing to me because I realized that I wasn't alone and maybe there's something else going on that I could look at. And that really sort of opened up my mind. You know, in a way, I'm surprised it's not a larger number because if you think about it, you know, they're looking at sort of trailing growth when you make the list. Yes. It seems natural there would be some regression there. Well, it's interesting. The research we did was when the list was 20 years old at that point. So there had been several companies that had made the list. But what we found is that 20% actually went backwards, 40% slowed down, and then 40% kept growing. I think that is an anomaly. We are talking about young companies, young, fast growth companies. When we went and did our second study, it was among not just Inc. 500 companies, but all companies across the nation. And we did see, in fact, those numbers that over the course of an average decade, more than half of all companies stall. And in your research, what did you see about recovery? So are you saying they experienced some period of stagnation? And then what happens after? Well, a couple of things happen after. Sometimes it's a momentary glitch due to a recession and the business comes back. 
Sometimes companies get into a vicious cycle and they spiral all the way to death. The smaller the company, the more likely that is to happen. Other times, companies can languish along, they can bump along the bottom and get acquired or do any number of things. But what we found is that the distinction between those three types of outcomes typically is not based solely on market factors, but it's based on how well the company responds internally, beginning with the alignment of its management team. That's the number one issue we see being problematic, no matter the size, no matter how big or how small the company. When there's disagreement at the top, nothing else really matters because you can't get any kind of strategy done. Well, that's the truth. And what do you think the causes are of that kind of fundamental disagreement? Original sin. <laughs> we, we're fallen human beings, and we have different perspectives, and we have different views of the world. We have different needs. We bring to the conference table different family situations and emotional outcomes. And what we found over time is it's kind of like health. You know, at any given time, there are bacteria in our body that are trying to kill us. I mean, that's just the nature of it. But when we're healthy, our immune system is strong and it's defeating the bacteria. And that sort of stasis is what we describe as health. When our bodies are hit with some sort of external event, whether it's a blizzard, we get caught without a jacket or a family crisis, anything that you know gets us down or a business crisis, our immune system physically can get depressed and those bacteria can arise and they can make us sick. And if we're not careful, they can kill us. I believe it's the same thing in business, that at any given time, these four internal dynamics are going on within organizations. But when your growth is healthy, for whatever reason, they're not really an issue. You can get along. When an external event, we call the market tectonics, hits your company and gets it down, now all of a sudden, your corporate immune system is depressed and the internal dynamics can arise and create problems. Great example, a very simple example, is when the Great Recession hit and every company was dealing with that, well, we were all also personally dealing with it, whether it was our house being underwater or our retirement plan tanking or what have you. And believe me, we bring all that stuff with us to work. You can't not. And that affects those discussions. Stephen, a lot of these processes from the standpoint of evaluating what's wrong with our company, why are we stalled? Why are we not progressing? And we talked a little bit about this migration of the customer and really focusing, did our market move? What's going on in some of the customer processes and their thought processes and how a company might miss their alignment with their consumer? Well, I mentioned the first and most destructive internal dynamic that we run across is a lack of alignment internally. The second is a loss of focus in the marketplace. And that typically happens one of two ways. Either a company is doing well so well that it gets cocky, for lack of a better word, and starts chasing business that maybe it has no business being in, and it becomes unfocused. Or um, a tectonic external event happens and the company starts suffering. And in order to overcome that, it starts chasing business it has no business chasing, and you get unfocused. You, You lose your way with your core target audience. We see it happen both ways. And it's sort of the nature of things. We like to cite the second law of thermodynamics, (laughs) which is entropy, right? Everything in the universe tends towards disarray. And our role as business owners is to be gravity, if you think about it that way. So everything tends towards disarray. Gravity is what holds it together. In our business, we tend to get unfocused. We tend to lose sight of our core customers. Things just tend to drift. And our job is to be gravity. And that's why we come to work every day. And in trying to be a focal point, what elements are involved in creating that gravity? Well, you really have to understand the principles of targeting 
And we have a saying that your target audience should be as narrow as possible, but as broad as necessary. And most companies focus on the second part, not the first part. So for instance, if you're a political candidate, on a certain day of the year, you got to get 51% market share, right? That's sort of the way that works. If you're not a political candidate, if you're in any other line of business, you don't need 51% market share. You could do with 40 or 30 or 20 or 10 or 6% market share. In fact, if you were a fashion brand or a perfume maker or a restaurant chain, you could do well with 6% of the market if you were reaching them effectively. So the thing to understand as gravity is we have to define our target market really, really well and then go after them really, really capably and not worry so much about the other people. There's another corollary, which is your positioning is about the business you seek, not the business you'll take. We'll talk with any company that comes to visit with us because if we can help them, we'll want to help them. But we seek companies that are stalled, stuck, or stale in our case because they're the ones who are perfect for our capabilities. Do you think the problem comes from just confusing growth or thinking of growth from a a breadth standpoint versus vertically? Yeah, I do. I think some of it is a little bit of a scarcity mindset, but we often tell our clients the story of Mountain Dew. And depending on how old you are, you might remember Mountain Dew's old advertising where the slogan was Yahoo Mountain Dew, and they had these hillbillies swinging from tree ropes into the lake. And the thing was launched as a hillbilly soft drink. You know, that was the theme, Mountain Dew. That was in the 60s or 70s, and it languished along 24th in market share for several years until the 1990s when they decided to narrow their focus on what has come to be called Dew Dudes. We all know who they are. (laughs) And they went after a narrow target market with great gusto. And as a result, Mountain Dew, depending upon the day, is the third, fourth, or fifth ranked soft drink in market share. So they narrowed the target to increase the intensity of their appeal And they actually grew in market share. Counterintuitive, but a good lesson. That's just remarkable. And it just shows you that your product doesn't necessarily have to be uh, the best in terms of quality or taste or substance. (laughs) Yeah. And it's the great case in point is I am not a do dude. I haven't, I never was, but I've been out of the age demo for years. And yet because they've done such a good job for so long telling the world who their customer is, if it's three o'clock on a Tuesday and I'm feeling kind of sleepy, I might grab a Mountain Dew. And that's my point. I'm not the business they're seeking, but they'll take my business. And that's one of the reasons their market share has grown. Yeah, that's a great example. So this is interesting. You know, you talk about this brand that went from a 24th in the market to third or fourth somehow, and you know, by really just narrowing that focus. What about industries? You know, we know that some industries are better than others. What about some industries that are actually struggling? And, and what happens when you find yourself in one of those industries? Yeah, there's a lot of that going on now. Obviously, the retail industry is struggling and the package goods industry is struggling. One industry that we have done a lot of work with over the last several years is, believe it or not, the funeral industry, or as they like to call it, the death care industry. It was a little bit of an odd term at first to me, but I got used to it. But how could that be struggling? I mean, we're all going to die. We're so die, yeah. is there a yeah, shortage well, of dying people? It's not the need that's changing. It's the industry. So the funeral industry has been really doing business the same way for 150 years, which is, you know, you got the funeral home or the mortuary, depending upon where you are in the country. That's one of the things we learned. People call it different things. And it's this place 
that you go to that you don't want to go to when somebody dies and it's creepy and it's dark and it's, you know, old furniture and the people there smile sort of in a weird way. <laughs> and they have those gross mints in the yeah, yeah, you would otherwise crazy. never ever take, but you've drank so much coffee, you kind of feel compelled. Right. There you go. And so what they found <laughs> was that people were looking for alternatives and not going to the industry anymore. I mean, cremation played a big part of that and there's different ways to get a body cremated, but they would go to what they call a celebrant now, or, you know, I'd get my aunt cremated and rent a helicopter and scatter her ashes over a forest or those sorts of things. And so the funeral industry, when they came to us seven or eight years ago, not only was the company that spearheaded this effort in decline, the funeral home industry was in decline and they didn't know what to do about it. And it was a really fascinating case study. And it gets to the root of this is they had taken for granted the fact that 100% of people die. And they assumed that the market was unchanging, that 100% of the bereaved would come to them. We actually did a major national segmentation study. And what we found was that 37% of people in the country were happy with how funerals were being done today. Only 37%. That meant that 63% were either actively seeking other options or just dissatisfied in general. That's a problem. <laughs> you know, it's systemic. So how do you address that? Yeah, well, the reason we did the study, so a leading funeral home read when growth stalls and came to me and said, we're having a problem. Can you help us? And I said, well, tell me a little bit about your business. And he started describing for me these trends, the trend towards cremation, the trend away from funeral homes. And I said, you know, I don't know that we can help you because this isn't like a brand positioning problem. This is like a secular stagnation of your industry. And, and we kept talking. I said, the only thing I can think to do is to do a national segmentation study to understand people's changing view of death. So we're not looking for the answer yet. We're looking for the playing field. We're trying to reestablish the playing field. And I actually told him, I said, the problem is this is a really expensive study. You can't afford it. Very enterprising man. He went and found 13 leading funeral homes from around the country to fund this groundbreaking study. And what we identified were six distinct natural market segments. And that's where I say two of them were happy with how funeral was being done today. It adds up to 37%. Four of them were not. But what that did for us was help us to understand in significant depth the dimensions of those four other target audiences and then envision ways to meet their needs better. So what were some of your biggest surprises? Well, the one aha that explained the problem was the 37-63 split. The other four segments had some really interesting characteristics to them. I mean, we call them pine boxers, the solo secularists, the dead enders, and the click and calls. And you can kind of infer what they're, what they're like from their names. But the dead sure. enders, these are the guys that are sitting in the basement in their parents' house in their boxer shorts playing video games. <laughs> and they're 30 years old. And they think that life is a dead end. They think that death is a dead end. They think there's no life after death. And these are the people who literally are taking grandma to get cremated and not picking up her ashes. Oh, they man. They just don't care. And it's kind of sad, actually, but it was interesting but then you take the two other segments, the click and calls and the solo secularists who look very much alike in terms of their age, income, demographics, behavior, but one is very religious and one is very non-religious, you could argue anti-religious. And that, when it comes to death, as you can imagine, is a real significant thing. Sure. How death is memorialized and so forth. And so in each case, it helped us understand how and why the traditional funeral home was or was not meeting the needs of these segments and what we could do about them. 
I just love the whole approach. And we're definitely going to have links to this on our site. I know that you have a little bit of this study online posted in your work. And the slogans that you came up with are just remarkable and just a great play on words. Couldn't tell you which segment I think I fit into, but I can tell you that a lot of them really resonated. Yes, we were trying to make it relevant again. And so with this particular company, we did a billboard campaign. You can see it on our website with simple lines like Yodo, (laughs) Y-O-D-O. I love it. uh, Which (laughs) in case anybody's questioning us, you only die once instead of YOLO. It was the right moment in history because YOLO was sort of out there. Oh yeah, absolutely. It caused some confusion among the 37%. Which is ideal because you weren't trying to reach them. Exactly. And not to the point where we offended them. What it caused, and we heard many, many examples of this, was conversations in the car. So when a millennial was with his grandmother or his mother or father, and they passed the billboard and they said, Yodo, what's that? And the kids said, you only die once. It sparked this conversation. And that's really the thread that we were trying to do throughout all of this is to ease people's fear about talking about the subject of death. And then that was the billboard campaign. For the clicking calls, we did an entirely different strategy, which was we created a new software platform that, by the way, I dare say, your kids are going to use to bury you on. It's kind of creepy, but it's revolutionizing the industry because historically, it was analog. I mean, you live your life digitally these days, but when somebody dies, it's all analog. And we're making funeral planning easy to do in an online environment, which might sound a little cold, but it's actually just the opposite. We're letting you get rid of the stuff you have to do easily so that you can mourn better. You know, I'm seeing this like with Amazon. I need to fix something on my shower door and I ordered a part and they asked if I wanted to just have somebody come over and do that, right? Did it, do I want to pay extra and they'll source somebody to come fix it? I'm Now I'm thinking, okay, so did somebody die? Oh, well, how about we send a drone over and pick that body up for you? <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> I mean, it's morbid, right? But I mean, I get what you're saying. Like, I can see how this will just become another way of dealing with something for a certain category of user. Well, if you think about it, during the course of this time, I lost my mother. And so I was going through, you know, it was kind of an odd sort of experience. But there's a couple, three hours of paperwork that you have to do when somebody dies. And it's really no fun to do it sitting in a mortuary. But she died on a Friday night late. So, you know, as you can imagine, nobody slept that night. We were up talking. And with Pasari, which is the name of this software, you can go into that environment with your family members. You can collaborate and you can sort of get some of the paperwork out of the way and all that stuff. And it really does make a difference. We haven't come up with the idea of drone pickups yet. Thank you for that. We'll have to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe just see how that plays out, right? See what the demand is. No, I, I mean, I get that. Like what you're talking about is you've changed the environment, right? So you wouldn't think because you think digital and you think, oh, it's cold and callous. But what you're describing is you've created the opportunity for a family to be together in a place where they're already comfortable. Yes, exactly. In the comfort of their home. Without having to go to that awful place with the awful breath mints and the furniture from 30 years ago and just have that look and smell and feeling of mourning. That's remarkable. And that's the power to bring it all back. That's the power of targeting. That's the power of understanding your market. That's the power of focus. And as a result, our client companies in that industry are back to healthy growth, even in an industry that's overall in decline. Steve, in regards to your book, Power Branding, is there an example regarding, you know, this rational or irrational process that consumers have? 
Yeah, absolutely. And the funny thing is, is I often stand on my own shoulder and observe my own consumer behavior. <laughs> and uh, that's where I get my, my craziest examples. And one was when my wife and I bought her a new car. We thought we knew what we were going to do. We had two cars on the list and we were going to look at them both. And Saturday morning we got up and we were going to go do this. And we thought rationally that we were going to make the purchase decision the way that a lot of people do. Well, it just so happened that one of the cars was a Honda Accord because Honda is a reliable thing. And one of them is a Volkswagen Passat. So we went and looked at both of the cars and I wanted her to buy the Passat because frankly, they have good advertising and I think that should be rewarded, but that's my bias. But along the way at the Volkswagen dealer, they also sold Mazdas. And so this hot little Mazda caught her eye. And one thing led to another. We ended up in the Mazda car. But the reason we ended up in the Mazda is because she had just had a big birthday. I won't say which one, but it was a big birthday, you know. And our youngest child had just gone to college. So the minivan years were coming to a close. And so whereas we thought we were going to buy a car based on gas mileage and comfort and all that rational stuff, this hot little sporty number sort of tapped a vein in her and I, I couldn't argue with it. And so the decision was made upon reflection, somewhat rationally, because I can explain it to you. But at the time, it felt very non-rational and in fact, bordered on irrational. And that's how so many of our purchase decisions go. I love your distinction that just because you can now explain it, <laughs> it doesn't mean that it was conventionally what we think of as rational. <laughs> right. And that's the way so many of our purchases are. And that's why we owe it to ourselves and to our companies to examine all of the wonderful emotional and rational ways that our consumers look at our business. This calls to mind jobs theory, jobs to be done, Ulwick and, um, mm -hmm. and Christensen, of course, and the three dimensions of the social, emotional, and functional. And what you're reminding me now is how often we can get stuck because, you know, even thinking in your funeral home example, people get so hung up on the functional behavior because it's something we can actually observe when in the end of the day, it's really the emotional and sometimes the social factors that really contribute to that decision. Nine times out of 10, those are the things that cause decisions to go the way they go. Steve, thank you for joining us today. How we truly enjoyed our time with you. That's been fun. Thank you. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? There's a lot I'd like to share. Our website is a wealth of resources. It's mckeewallwork.com. There's a handful of things there. There's articles about this whole rationally irrational thing, if people care to learn more about that. There's also free excerpts of Power Branding, actually all of our books, but if you want to download a free excerpt if somebody's interested in that. And then the, probably the most telling thing is that we have a 60-second self-diagnosis that a business owner can take to understand what they might be dealing with in terms of some of these issues. And it can all be found at our website, which is mckeewallwork.com, and I believe you all have links as well. Our guest today has been Steve McKee. You can learn more about Steve as well as find links to articles on his website, his new book, Power Branding, and the excellent self-diagnosis survey Steve mentioned in our show notes at businessownersradio.com. This episode has been sponsored by Aligned for Business, provider of business consulting and executive coaching. That's Aligned, the number four, business.com. Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. 
As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show and, of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.